Welcome to New Creation, a home for the creative community of Los Angeles. For more information, visit our website at newcreationla.com. And now, the sermon. If you could have heaven, if you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you've ever had on earth, all the food you've ever liked, all the leisure activities you've ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you've ever seen, all the physical pleasures you've ever tasted, no human conflict, no natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven like that if Jesus was not there? That's a question that pastor author John Piper asks in his book, God is the Gospel. And I think it's a great question for us this morning. You may hear that question and think even, I believe that here but it's harder here. Well, part of the challenge for us is to get that into our hearts, to believe it here. And so my hope is that the more we experience Jesus Christ, the more we engage the truth of his word, the more we will answer that question with, we must have Jesus to be content in heaven. Now, part of the challenge for us is that our view of heaven has been shaped more by Saturday morning cartoons and pop culture than it has the scriptures. And that is why the book of Revelation is so important. Now we're almost at the end of the book. We're in chapter 21. And these last couple of chapters of this book uh, are on the heels of Christ fully realized victory. And on the heels of that, we now get this incredible picture of heaven. Here's what heaven is not. We do not become angels. We don't get wings. We don't morph into cute little cherubs. We don't float on clouds playing harps. In fact, heaven is not a place that individual souls ascend to. Rather, what we see in Revelation 21 is that heaven comes down. Heaven comes to earth. Heaven descends to us. We actually cannot get to heaven. Heaven must come to us. Now that may sound shocking to you. So let's go through this text and take a look and see if we can wrap our heads around it. Uh, As always, I think it's really helpful to understand the text in its original context. So if you remember back to the beginning of the book, we saw that the Apostle John has written this letter while himself in exile, and he writes it to the churches in Asia Minor who are struggling. 
they are struggling. It is rough because uh, they are being persecuted. And so in the first century, uh, end of the first century, the emperor of Rome, Domitian, is ruling, and he's the first guy to really unleash wide-scale persecution against Christians. And so if you were a Christian in the first century, many had their homes taken from them, plundered. Many were sent to the arena, the Colosseum, to be torn apart by wild beasts for what they believed as crowds watched and cheered on. They were impaled on stakes while still alive, covered in pitch and lit on fire. Christians were crucified by the hundreds and sometimes even by the thousands along the highways of Rome. This is the context that John is writing to. And so John, as I mentioned, is exiled. And so what, what does he give this church? What does he give them in the first century to give them hope, to give them courage in order to face it? What he gives them is revelation. He gives them the new heavens and the new earth. All right, looks like we're having a lot of trouble with the speaker, so I'm just gonna go without it. I'm gonna yell. Can everybody hear me? All right. Now it's like real street preaching, right? Does anybody have a megaphone? No, I don't want that, okay. All right, so let's look at what John says to this church in the first century in chapter four, excuse me, in verse four of chapter 21. He says that Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. What an incredible hope and comfort in the face of what was going on in the first century. And here's the amazing thing, is it worked, right? This hope that John gives them, this look at the new heavens, the new earth, it actually works because those Christians, as they were being killed, as they were being torn apart, burned, they did it singing. They sang as they were killed and they proclaimed forgiveness for those that were killing them as it was happening. One of the early church fathers, Tertullian, who lived in the second, third century, he said, uh, the blood of the brothers is like seed. The more they kill us, the more we grow. They had hope. They had hope for the future. All right, so that's that context, right? How about our context? None of us have had to go through what those first century Christians went through. Yet, there have been plenty of Christians in the last 2,000 years 
that have had to go through it. I'll give you just some statistics here. So, over the course of the last 2,000 years, there's been more than 70 million Christians killed for their faith. 70 million. Over half of those were martyred in the 20th century under communist and fascist governments. In the 21st century, our current century, the estimates are somewhere between 100,000 to 160,000 Christians being killed every year, martyred for their faith. And that is why this book is a hope for every generation. It is not just for the first century. It is not just for the last. It is for every generation. So while John's words have been able to give people hope for the last 2,000 years who've gone through horrific persecution, how much more so should these words give us hope today with whatever we may face? When God tells the churches in the first century that he will personally wipe away their tears, that he will end pain and suffering and mourning and crying, that he will end death, he does it with such confidence. He speaks of it in the present tense as if it's already happened. In verse 4 he says, the former things have passed away. And that is the former way, the former order of things is over. And so again, how should that affect our tears, our pain, our suffering, our mourning? Well, it should give us incredible hope. All right, so there's a little bit of kind of the original context and our context. Now I want to get into what Revelation 21 is saying about the new creation. And so John tells us that God is making all things new. He does not say God is making all new things. He's making everything that he's made new. He's renewing it. Because the Bible is a story of redemption. It is not a story of replacement. Get rid of the old, let's make something new and bring that in. It's actually redemption. That is the story through and through the scriptures. That God is redeeming all that he has made. And so think of it this way. If the creation becomes destroyed, that God has to scrap it and start over, who wins? Satan wins. But that's not the narrative here. If you remember when we started this book, what's the message? Does anybody remember? Two words. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. That's the message of this book. He is renewing all things. All right, let's take a look at verse 1 again. There it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. So when our English ears hear this language, 
of new earth, new heaven, we tend to hear second, a second earth, a second heaven. But that is not what is happening in the Greek, the original language. What we see there is in the Greek, this new earth, new heavens means a new kind. It is different, it's newer, it's different than the present kind, the present type, the present order. Think about it this way. Um, if you got a new kitchen in your house, right? We use that term all the time when people remodel. Oh, I got a new kitchen. Oh, do you mean someone came in and, and made cuts in the house and got a forklift and drove the old kitchen out and then drove in a new kitchen? No. When we say we got a new kitchen, we mean our kitchen has been renewed, right? It's been made new. All the old stuff that was broken has all been fixed. There's new appliances, right? So it's made new. That is what Revelation is talking about when it says that there is a, a new heaven, a new earth. It is this renewed thing. And so the old system is what is replaced. All the broken things of our earth are removed. All the sin is removed. All the enemies of God are taken out and it's replaced by a new system, a new order. We're told the sea is no more. Who's a little disappointed? The sea is no more. What, no beaches? No surfing? Is that what God is saying here? That is not what we have here. It doesn't mean that there'll be no beaches. Okay, so the sea in Revelation is a symbol for the realm of evil and rebellion against God. So if you remember earlier in the book, the sea is the place where the beasts in Revelation emerge out of. The sea was the symbol of commerce for the nations who are rebelling against God. And so when John tells us the sea is no more, he's saying that evil and chaos are no more. Romans 8, verses 19 through 23 tells us this. Listen how it talks about the goal for creation. The Apostle Paul tells us there, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from bondage to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Isn't that an amazing thing? So John is saying that excuse me, Paul is saying here that the creation itself is waiting. It's wait, waiting to be freed from this corruption, this system, this order that exists now. He goes on to say, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth till now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly 
as we eagerly uh, wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So what's being renewed? The earth and our bodies. That is the picture that John is giving us of heaven. That's the picture that Paul gives us of heaven as well. And so the new heavens and the new earth are a redeemed creation, a restored creation. It is physical. We have physical bodies. Now, as wonderful uh, as it is, when Christians die, they go immediately before Jesus and they are taken into this conscious, uh, conscious presence of God where they're able to enjoy rich community with all those that have preceded them. That's what happens when we die. But there is something in that that is incomplete, that is unfinished. Even the souls in heaven are waiting. So we see that the creation is waiting. We see that our own bodies are waiting to be redeemed. And even the souls in heaven are waiting. What are they waiting for? They are waiting for the return of Jesus. Because here's the thing. The current population of heaven only has one resurrected body. Only Jesus in heaven has a resurrected body. And so the rest of the souls in heaven, all those, gone, all those that have gone before us, are waiting for resurrected bodies. And that is what happens when Jesus returns. He returns and he brings heaven down and all of creation is restored. Our bodies are resurrected and restored. And so the eternal future is a physical one in a restored earth. And that is good news. That is amazing. And so John talks about this city coming down, right? In the same sentence, he describes it as a bride being prepared for her husband. And so this picture of a bride in city, it's actually a picture of the church. It's a picture of God's people. And it is the church made perfect. It is the church with all the sin removed. So we wait as a church as well. Because until then, the church is a collection of sinners in need of God's grace. And that means this, that means we'll make mistakes, Sometimes we'll accidentally wound people. Sometimes we'll do it on purpose. We'll frustrate one another. Yet God is still at work in us. He is gradually transforming us into this beautiful bride, this beautiful city. So if you're expecting the perfected bride, the perfected city now, you're going to be disappointed because it is not here yet. And so we must wait. 
and we must wait with patience. Now let's talk about this city, this renewed city. What's different about it? Well, throughout Revelation 21, we get these incredible descriptions of the city. Beautiful, even beyond description. We see this full range of precious stones, streets of gold. But what gives it radiance is not the stones, not the gold. What give it, gives it its radiance is God's presence. That's what makes it radiant. Let's look at verse 3. Verse 3 tells us this. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And so uh, the Hebrew word here is tabernacles. God dwells, he tabernacles, he sets up a tent with his people. He is in the same tent, the same space as his people. And so we read in Revelation 21 that there's then no need for a temple. Why? Because God is there with them. He's tenting with them. Now, I hear a lot of people in Los Angeles say things like, you know what? I don't need to be part of a church, right? I can worship God anywhere. I can go into the park and worship. I can go to the beach and worship. But here's the thing, God is, and he has always been, in a very special and beautiful way, present with his gathered people. If you want to experience the Lord, you experience it with his gathered people. And the reason there's no need for a church in the renewed creation is because he is with his gathered people in a very physical way present way and so one day that presence will extend to all his creation that experience will extend to all his creation now we're, we're told a little later in the chapter these dimensions of the city that comes down we're told that it's like this cube 12,000 stadia wide 12,000 stadia long 12,000 stadia high. So 12,000 stadia is about 1,500 miles. So if we take that 1,500 mile, just the, the length and width, it's about half of the United States. Imagine a city like that coming out of heaven. But here's the thing. He's not talking about actual physical dimensions here. What we see here is this exploded version of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And so there, the place of God's dwelling, the Holy of Holies, the center of the tabernacle, was 20 cubits. 20 cubits high, 20 cubits wide, 20 cubits long. It was this cube. And that's about 15 feet, by the way. So it was about a 15-foot cube. And what we see in the tabernacle is that's the place of God's presence. But in the new creation, as heaven comes down, that 15-foot cube expands over the whole creation, 
God dwelling, tabernacling, tenting with his people. And we see that this city is stunningly beautiful. But here's the thing. What makes it beautiful is not the precious stones, not the gates of pearl, not the streets of gold. What makes it ultimately beauty is the relationship between God and his people. It has a relational beauty. I want you to think for a moment about your own longing to experience God and imagine that fully satisfied. How often have you said, I wish I could see God. I wish I could hear his voice. I wish I could feel his presence. I wish I could know his goodness. Well, in the redeemed creation, you will have it. You will be fully satisfied by all of that. And so to long for those things now is to long for a renewed creation. And what will that feel like? It will be very personal because God himself, our Father, will wipe away our tears. It doesn't just say he'll end them. It says he will wipe them away. Let's take a look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, And he said to me, It's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. So God will fill the hole in our hearts, the God-shaped hole, and we will be satisfied. How can we have all of this? Well, John in uh, his gospel, same writer, but in his gospel book, tells us this, chapter 7, 37 and 38. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. For whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is where I do my illustration taking a sip. If anyone thirsts, come to me and let him drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow living water. How do we get it? We believe in Jesus as the scripture has said. We believe that life is to be found in Jesus. We believe that he died and that he was raised to life. We believe that he lived a sinless life, a life that we never could, and that he died the death that we deserve in our place. We believe that is how we have it. We trust Jesus 
with our lives. We follow him. We love him. We serve him. We join his gathered people. We believe in and hope in his promises. How do we have it? If you want that satisfaction, if you want that redeemed creation, you get it by repenting of your sin and calling upon the name of Jesus to be saved. And when you do that, you will begin to experience that new creation here and now. It's not something you have to wait for. I mean, it is ultimately, but we can, we can taste it now. We get to start experiencing it now. Now here's the thing. What we believe about the future absolutely 100% affects the way that we experience the present. All right, so uh, my friend Ben in the shade over here has a cork shop, right? So I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna come up with a little make-believe metaphor for Ben's cork shop. Ben has uh, employed multiple people at our church, praise God, in this last year. But I want you to imagine that Ben hired two people, right? Let's say uh, he hires John Hensley in the front here and Robbie Johnson. And he tells Robbie, all right, Robbie, so you're gonna have to sit in this room. <clears throat> it's kind of dingy. And every day for the next year, for 10 hours a day, uh, I've got cork components that I need you to peel the wrappers off and take it out of this box and put it into this box. And at the end of that year, I'm gonna give you $5,000. But to John Hensley, he says, all right, John, I'm gonna have you do that same work. And at the end of that year, I'm gonna give you $20 million. So is uh, Robbie and uh, John are working side by side. How do you think that goes? Robbie probably gets really frustrated. I'm tired of this. I'm sick of this. Maybe he even walks out of the job. Well, John is here whistling away. Oh, I love this job. What time do I be here tomorrow? Great, great. The future, what you believe about the future directly affects how you experience the present. So if you believe that in this life that all there is is what you see, if you believe this planet will become inhabitable and the memory of you and those you love will ultimately just wipe away, no one remembered, will that affect the way you experience this world? Absolutely. Or if you believe that one day you will have to stand before your creator and give an account for your life, every decision, every action, every word, every deed, every motivation, will that affect the way you live? Absolutely. Now, third option. If you believe that the absolute worst things in this world will one day be undone, if you believe that even if you're killed, you will be resurrected. If you believe that evil will be punished, 
and that eternity with God in his beautiful paradise awaits you, will that affect you? Will it affect the way you experience this world? 100%. It affected those martyrs in John's time, and it can for you too. It changes your life, not because it's some kind of fairy tale fantasy, but because it is true. I want to close just reading the last three verses one more time. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. That is our hope. And church, as we believe that, it will change us more and more. It will cause us to experience persecution with hope, trial with hope. Amen? Let's pray. Let's pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for this incredible picture today. We give you thanks for the hope that you've given us. We give you thanks that your promise is to restore, to redeem your creation. We give you thanks that the eternity that awaits us is a physical one, is an earthly one, but one in a redeemed creation. And so, Lord, help us to live with hope, knowing what is coming. Help us to have that shape the way we experience the present. And Lord, remind us that we can be satisfied. Every thirst that we have in this world can be satisfied through you and you alone. And so Lord, if there are any here who have not received Jesus, who have not called upon his name to be saved, who have not trusted him alone for salvation, Lord, let them call to you and say, forgive me of my sins. I trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for salvation so that I can be in beautiful relationship with him from now till evermore. We pray these things all in the mighty and precious name of Jesus Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this sermon and encourage you to become a regular member of our online community. To find out more about the church, visit our website at newcreationla.com.